Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's story is one of terror, murder, bloodshed, slavery, and the seeds of racism. It was the year 1537, on the eve of Epiphany. We are in the home of Dante, Botticelli, Michelangelo, and the Medici, Florence. That night, Alessandro de' Medici, Duke of Florence, had gone to the house of his cousin, Lorenzino, hoping for an assignation with the beautiful, though married, Caterina de Genori. Awaiting her in Lorenzino's chamber, Alessandro had made himself comfortable, taken off his sword, and then, lulled by the warm fire, fallen asleep. But when the door burst open, it was not the fair Caterina. It had all been a ruse. Instead, Lorenzino, and his companion, Scoron Concolo, had tricked and trapped the Duke. My guest today, Professor Catherine Fletcher, describes in her book, The Black Prince of Florence, what happened next. My lord, are you asleep? Scoron Concolo asked, and he plunged his sword into Alessandro's stomach. Alessandro lurched up from the bed and made a dash for the door, seizing a stool to use as a shield, but Scoronconcolo pulled a knife. Slashing down from the left temple, he sliced open the Duke's left cheek. Lorenzino pushed Alessandro onto the bed. He used the weight of his own body to force the Duke down. He tried to cover Alessandro's mouth so he couldn't scream, but the Duke bit so angrily into his thumb that Lorenzino collapsed beside him. As the pair grappled, Scoronconcolo drew his sword. Fearful of cutting Lorenzino, he managed only to slash the mattress. Finally, he pulled out a knife and plunged it into Alessandro's throat. It was said that for all the time that Alessandro waited, held down by Lorenzino for Sconconcolo to strike, he never wept nor pleaded for his life, nor once did he let go of his cousin's thumb. Lorenzino and Scoronconcolo lifted Alessandro's body from the blood-covered floor and placed it on the bed. They tidied the drapes and went on their way. The first Duke of Florence was dead. To find out how we got to this point, I asked Professor Fletcher to take me back to the very beginning. Catherine, it's such a pleasure to have you on Not Just the Tudors. And we are very much talking about Not the Tudors today. 
We're talking about The Black Prince of Florence, a wonderful title for your book. Who was The Black Prince of Florence? Well, this is Alessandra de' Medici, who was born round about 1512, although we know very, very little about his early years, was an illegitimate member of the Medici family, rulers of Florence. We can come on to his exact parentage and the debates about that, but he's the half-brother of Catherine de' Medici, who goes on to be Queen of France later in the 16th century. And he, by various extraordinary accidents of inheritance, ends up in 1532 as Duke of Florence, but then really doesn't last very long, has a lot of enemies, there are a lot of people out there who think he shouldn't be ruler of that city, certainly think he should be Duke of that city, and he's assassinated in 1537. Was why the Black Prince of Florence, because there is a tale that Alessandro's mother was a woman of African heritage, possibly enslaved, possibly working in the Medici household, sexually exploited by one of the men of the family. And this is how Alessandro has come to be sometimes labelled as the first black head of state in the modern West. Now, that isn't a description that he would have recognised or used in his own time. In fact, there's very little conversation about his race in the 16th century. But he has become quite an iconic figure into the 20th century as black history has been taken much more seriously so there's a whole story there, both about his own life, which is incredibly dramatic, it reads like a thriller, and about the way his life has been written up. Perhaps let's start by painting a bit of a picture of the world into which Alessandro had been born. What was Florence like at this time? It's a very wealthy city. Italy is one of the wealthiest parts of Europe. This is a city prominent in banking, in the wool trade. Italy is really at the crossroads of the Mediterranean, so it's very important strategically. Because it's very important strategically, there is a lot of competition between the European powers for access to Italy. And at the time of Alessandro's birth in 1512, there has been a war going for almost 20 years. It's a very complicated set of wars, but the key thing is that it's really between France and Spain in various shifting alliances with the different small states of Italy. So Italy isn't one country, it's divided up into lots of different states, of which Florence is one. France and Spain are fighting it out for who is going to have more power on the Italian peninsula. Up until 1512, the Medici family, who had previously been rulers of Florence, have been in exile. And they have made themselves a base at the papal court in Rome, thanks to one of their key figures, Giovanni de' Medici, being a cardinal. So this is where all these different little states of Italy come in. The Pope is also the ruler of a state that's much bigger than just the Vatican now, big swathe of central Italy. The Medici are using their power in Rome to try and get back into control of Florence. And this desire to be back in power in Florence really drives a lot of what is going on in the backdrop to Alessandro's story. So he has two uncles, let's say, the relationship is actually slightly more complex, who are popes, Pope Leo X, who is that cardinal, Giovanni I, becomes Pope in 1513, and then Pope Clement VII, who some listeners might know better as the Pope who turns down Henry VIII's first divorce. So that's roughly where we are historically in the 16th century. We're round about that period of time as well. And the Medici, like all sort of dynastic families, have this perennial problem. They need a male heir if they are to keep that rulership going. Now, they don't officially rule Florence at this point in the 1510s as its lords. When they manage to get back into power in Florence, 
It's in the Republican structures of the cities. This is a city that's ruled by a limited franchise of men who are full members of guilds. So that's not your day labourers, nor is it the big aristocratic land magnates. They're also excluded from power. It's kind of middle class in a way. And it's quite an oligarchic system by this point in history. So the Medici are ruling in this republican structure with the help of allied families. But even so, there's this kind of expectation that the rulership passes from one member of the Medici family to another. And in 1519, they hit a crisis because the last in the main line of the family dies. And they are left with one infant daughter, Catherine de' Medici, future Queen of France. But she can't rule in Florence because she needs to be a man to be elected. And besides, she's a baby. She's not really an option in any sense. And Florence is a particularly patriarchal society in a lot of ways. There's none of that court structure that enables women in some of the principalities and the monarchies to exercise quite a lot of informal power. Florence, women's roles are very, very circumscribed. So the Medici then have two illegitimate boys. One who's called Hippolyta de' Medici, who's been acknowledged for a little while. He's the son of a gentlewoman. He's quite respectable in a way. There's possibly going to be a role for him in the family. And then they suddenly discover that, oh, actually, they do have another who they hadn't really admitted to previously. And this is Alessandro. And there are obvious reasons why you might not acknowledge Alessandro because his mother is lowborn. Everybody agrees on this. She's probably a servant in one of the Medici households. She may be enslaved. And there are rumours within living memory that she is not white. So all these things add up to Alessandro not really being the kind of ideal person to take on the rulership of Florence. But he's there as a backup to his elder cousin, Ippolito. Who's going to do this? And they grow up and there's a lot of toing and froing in the politics of the period with wars, with conflict. They spend some time away from Rome, away from Florence in northern Italy, going around the kind of little courts, enjoying themselves as aristocratic young men do, hunting and hawking and generally having a good time and not paying much attention to their tutor. And in the 1520s, once they're a little bit more grown up, once Ippolito is about 13, 14, he gets sent to Florence to start preparing to take on a political role. Now, was the stain on Alessandro from the fact that he was illegitimate or is it a kind of what we'd say classist or is it a sort of nascent form of racism or is it all three? I think it's all three of those in different ways. So it is definitely more problematic to be an illegitimate child inheriting in Italy than it is to be a legitimate one. It's not as much of a problem as it would be some places in Northern Europe. There are quite a few examples of illegitimate children who are essentially adopted into the family and go on to inherit. So although people raise eyebrows about that, it's not considered a fundamental problem. You can get over that. The low birth and the race both feed into a kind of ideas, I think, about almost the nature of the body and the complexion and what it is. Because we have in the 16th century this idea of there being different orders of people, different types of people who are born into different roles in life. You know, are you going to work on the land? Are you going to pray as a priest? Are you going to sort of fight as a knight? And these things are relatively fixed. It's not that nobody ever moves between them. But there is an idea that there's something quite innate sometimes to your place in society. And so although Alessandro has a very sort of father, 
on his mother's side, he doesn't quite have that. He certainly doesn't have in his appearance the ideal complexion for a nobleman, which is the sort of pink and white complexion that represents the ideal of the young men. Now, lots of people in Italy don't actually have that complexion. Lots of military men would have quite dark tans from going out and fighting. So again, not necessarily something that is an absolute barrier, but all these things add up and his enemies point them back against him. So you don't know who your mother is. You're a bastard. You are just unsuitable to rule. And he has a lot of enemies because a lot of people in Florence don't like the Medici as rulers. So there's a sense that just as people say about Richard III in England that his appearance is what marks him as a tyrant and they say about Henry VIII and his height and his good looks that he therefore has the markings of a king, the same judgments are made on Alessandro's appearance and indeed on his sort of essential ontological <laughs> you know, sense of being, like who he is. He comes from bad stock is their idea about it. Yes, he does. Although it's interesting because as he grows up, he becomes very good at jousting, becomes very good at tennis. He goes out and plays football. He gets his reputation for doing all those athletic things that a young potential ruler ought to be able to do. He breaks all these lances as a joust and when he's travelling in the company of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. So he, to some extent, manages to acquire some of that physical side of the appropriate persona of the ruler. So it's interesting, even though he doesn't necessarily start out with having all these attributes, he quite quickly manages to acquire them and manages to impress the right people. He is never really gets the credit for being kind of educated and well-read. And again, you can see some of this like fitting in a little bit to the way that even at this time, black Africans were stereotyped as being good at doing physical things and not good at doing a kind of literary or more intellectual type of things. So you have to be a little bit wary of how that stereotype might be playing in a little bit in relation to very early ideas about race. So, yeah, we've just got an awful lot of things in the mix. And really, the sources are terribly, terribly unhelpful on all of this because we have almost nobody reflecting directly in the period about what they make of Alessandro's complexion or anything like that. It's all just little bits pieced together here and there. But we do know the main things they object to are his mother's low birth and that her status her role as a household servant or slave. The word for these in Italian is server, and it's just unspecific about the legal status, so we can't tell very much from that. And who knows exactly what is going on in the minds and sort of in the subconscious thinking of people who meet him, but it's clearly not sufficient, any hostility he does experience, to be an absolute barrier to him taking on that role as Duke of Florence. Okay, so you had got us to the 1520s and the boys Ippolito and Alessandro just coming into their teenage years. Would you pick up the story there? Yeah, so what happens then is that in 1527, the Italian wars that I've talked about were kind of rolling on and everything goes horribly wrong in the spring of 1527. Rome is sacked, Clement is taken hostage and up in Florence... Opponents in the Medici family seize their chance and kick them out. So having had 15 or so years of getting back into the rulership of Florence after a previous period of exile, the Medici are now out again and out in a very, very bad political situation in which Clement is 
hoping that maybe he'll get some help with the French, but it becomes clear the next summer that that's going to happen. And really at this point, the Holy Roman Emperor gets the upper hand in the Italian wars. So Clement also thinks, on top of all of this, the war's going very badly, he's going to have to make a bad peace with Charles. He also gets ill. And the Medici are hanging on by their fingernails at this point. They have some power in Rome. They have nothing in Florence. Clement might die. Because he's Pope, there's no automatic succession. So he thinks, what can I do? I will make the elder of my nephews a cardinal. And that way, we can at least hang on. So he makes Hippolyta a cardinal. Hippolyta is really unhappy about this. That was his family duty to do it, and he does it, but he really wanted to be ruler of Florence. And then Clement recovers. And then we've got a problem because the Medici want to get back into power in Florence, but he can't just unmake Hippolyto a cardinal, having convinced everybody that he really, really needed to make this nephew a cardinal, even though some people thought it was a bit cheeky and this was going to mean less money for all the rest of the cardinals and so on and so forth. So there's one child left, and that's Alessandro, and it's going to have to be Alessandro. Hippolyto is absolutely furious, but Alessandro it is. So with the help of Spanish troops, the Medici fight their way back into Florence. Alessandro doesn't immediately become ruler. He goes off on a long tour in the company of Charles V, where he gets to impress Charles with his jousting and so on and so forth, and importantly, get engaged to Charles's illegitimate daughter, Margaret, who then is known as Margaret of Austria, but is better known as Margaret of Parma from her second marriage to the Duke of Parma. At the point when they get engaged, she's only six. So she takes her a while to get into this story, even by the standards of dynastic marriages, that is a bit too young. So they have a long engagement. And Alessandro then comes back to Florence in 1531. He's installed as a ruler of Florence. It's very, very clear that he has the backing of the Spanish and the Austrian and German sort of empire that Charles rules his whole swathe of Europe. And Alessandro then starts to rule. 1532 becomes Duke, which is also contentious. So it looks like he's pretty perfectly set up with his uncle as Pope. He's now in favour with Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. What could go wrong? The main thing that goes wrong is that he's got a jealous cousin. And this is when this all becomes an incredible sort of Shakespearean type of story because Hippolyto is just furious at what has happened. So first of all, Hippolyto tries in a rather half-hearted way, to have a coup almost immediately when Alessandro comes back. He's sort of told off by his uncle, you can't do that. Clement then sends Hippolyto away to Hungary to be a legate with the imperial armies, tries to get him out of the way. On his way back from Hungary, he tries to raise some troops, possibly to invade Florence, and he gets arrested. <laughs> and so then he gets told off again, he says, stop doing this. And this just goes on and goes on. And there's this sort of bubbling sense of resentment that I should have been a duke. I should have been engaged to the emperor's daughter. And a real, real unhappiness about the fact that he's been made to be a cardinal. And while Clement is alive, he manages to keep a lid on this. But Clement has been ill in 1529. He gets ill again in 1534 and he dies that summer. And from this point on, this begins with a gunpowder plot on Hippolyto's part to murder Alessandro by putting barrels of gunpowder under the dining room in his mistress's house and then blowing them up. They discover that plot and they interrogate one of the people who's 
involved in it. And that is the sort of trigger then for a plot where Alessandro's name never comes up directly, but you can really see his hands or the hands of his lieutenants behind it to poison Ippolito. And there is an incredible account of this whole business in the trial documents in Rome. Ippolito hung on for 10 days after eating the poisoned chicken soup, which his cook had prepared. They essentially they bribed the cook to poison the soup. And in the documents in Rome, you can read all the interrogation. And this is an interrogation under torture, where they're essentially stringing this guy up by his arms behind his back to try and get him to talk. He hangs on for quite a while, possibly because he's been told to not give it away what sort of poison it is too soon so they can't find an antidote quickly enough. And he names a couple of people eventually who are associated with Alessandro's household. But it doesn't do any good because Polito dies and that leaves Alessandro in power. And although his rivals try then to overturn his rule and they go and appeal to Charles. They have all these sort of hearings in Naples in which they kind of make the case for and against the legality of Alessandro's imposition as Duke. They haven't got a figurehead with Ippolito out of the picture. And so Alessandro succeeds in the hearings in front of Charles. He gets to marry Margaret of Austria and it all looks great for about six months. And then this other cousin, Lorenzino, who has financial grievances against Alessandro's side of the family, he also claims to be doing it because he wants to restore the Republic, assassinates Alessandro, and then remarkably writes an account of why he did it. And that book is just an extraordinary piece of self-justification on his part. Why he did it, he was an unsuitable ruler, Florence ought to be a Republic, he was a tyrant, he had the cardinal killed, Cardinal Ippolito. He had his mother killed, according to Lorenzino, because the exiles that his opponents were going to produce her in front of the emperor and show what she was. That's a kind of interesting comment because it implies that there is something visually about her appearance that might count against Alessandro. What I think is fascinating about the sources here is that Lorenzino's apology for the murder sets the tone of all the subsequent tellings of Alessandro's story, in which he is absolutely 100% the bad guy. Well, quite. So his reputation is very much as a tyrant and as a monster. I mean, how true is that in thinking about his rule? Nobody makes themselves a prince in Renaissance Italy, or indeed anywhere, by being a pleasant individual who is kind and nice to all their enemies. He fairly broadly sticks, so far as I can tell, to the conventions of vendetta, which is quite a strong social norm in Italy. So the point at which he has Ippolito assassinated is after there's clear evidence of a plot by Ippolito against him. And that kind of revenge killing conforms to a set of social rules about when it's okay to assassinate your enemies. Like, they are clearly plotting against me. I had a case for doing it. So within that, it fits. And I think part of the issue with how we look at his rule is that it suited his successes to pile onto Alessandro's shoulders all the worst things that happened in the early years of the regime, from which they later benefit. So it's Alessandro's fault that one of the leaders of his opponents died in jail. I mean, Alessandro personally wasn't there. It's very difficult to pin that onto Alessandro. 
Alessandro was responsible for preventing people from legally bearing arms in the city. Well, that was a long rule that went on in a lot of different Italian states. So the fact that you weren't allowed to have guns or swords or knives of a certain type within the city bounds. Now, Alessandro gets a lot of stick for that, but actually, more generally, lots of rulers put that type of rule in place. And he seems to have had a fair eye, perhaps not in the terms that we would like to see it now always, for justice for ordinary people. So in the small amount of his archive that survives, we see him intervening in cases around dowries, in cases about the honour of young women, in replying, doing all the business of government and having quite a careful eye to justice in the city and to providing for the ordinary people of the city. He's quite a populist type of ruler in some ways, making sure that there are food supplies, putting on public festivals, restoring things like the Palio horse race that was run through Florence and really trying to rebuild the city after it had been quite devastated in the siege that brought him back to power. So I think if his rule had gone on, he would still have had a reputation as a tyrant and somebody who'd come to power illegitimately, but I think there might be a lot more positive as a counterweight to that rather dark period of the initial switch from the Republic into the Duchy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The sources are key here. So we've got Lorenzino's apology, and you mentioned these other sort of sources. What are the kind of full range of sources you had to reconstruct Alessandro's life? I had very good wardrobe accounts. So we do quite a lot of interesting reading off and what he was choosing to wear, his style. There's a lot of echoing of Charles V's imperial style there. There's some really fun fancy dress costumes where they're dressing up as moors and gypsies. And there's quite an interesting kind of question there about whether he's actually almost dressing up as the things and the people he's accused of being in order to make a joke of it. But it's very hard to say. Then we have these trial records in Rome. We have some papal letters. We have 
the reports of foreign diplomats, some of whom can be quite gossipy and quite good on all the details of what was going on at the Florentine court, what conversations Alessandro was having with his mistress, what he was buying for his wife, stories about possible miscarriage that Margaret had in the early months of the marriage. There are lots of different types of source, but it really was a jigsaw puzzle. And the contemporary histories that follow on in the 16th century are an absolute pain to deal with because they are so intensely partisan in most cases, and in most cases quite hostile to Alessandro. And so it must be quite difficult to get a sense of his character in any way that's divorced from that lacquer that's been placed over them by this posthumous reputation. Yeah, there are a few exceptions to that rule. There's a book of stories that was written and dedicated to Alessandro's own illegitimate daughter, which are tales of Alessandro in a more positive light about somebody who is engaged in justice and law-giving. And actually, there's a nice one where he is acting quite favourably in the interests of an illegitimate child who's being denied an inheritance on the grounds of his bastardy. So although that's a kind of fictionalised version of Alessandro's rule, you'd think, well, here is somebody who wants to tell a positive tale and these are the things that he's picking up on. And we can look at some of the art that he commissioned. We can look at Margaret's response to his death because she seems to have genuinely liked it. She wants to say in Florence, she genuinely appears quite sad at what has happened. And there's Charles V's favour too. Charles V doesn't have to like this potential new son-in-law. He's the most powerful man in Europe and he does seemed quite take to Alessandro as a person. So you can pick out little bits of what might be an alternative view because you have to do something to explain why Charles V agrees to marry this daughter who is very much in demand as a bride to this particular ruler. And there were other ways of doing it. He doesn't then marry her to Alessandro's successor, although he could. Cosimo de' Medici has to settle for Eleonora of Toledo, who is definitely a second best prize here. But as I say, it's very tricky to get past some of that very hostile reputation. And undoubtedly, there are chunks of that that is true. Ippolito was assassinated. I mean, you may think that he deserved it, but that's within the rules of their game. But, you know, you cannot get over the fact that there are murders, there are some pretty unpleasant rise to power. And in one sense, Alessandro is on the wrong side of history, being the Duke, as opposed to the broad-based Republican sort of government. Yes, I suppose there's that real question about how much he's the product of his age. I mean, we're having the discussion all the time at the moment, aren't yeah. we? Is he being somebody who lives in a violent age, in an age of vendetta? Do we excuse his murder? And do we judge history? I mean, these are big questions. I think that pretty much all the elite men in this world are involved in some capacity in warfare as commanders, or if not directly as commanders, as financiers, um, as brokers of troops and so on, as people who are structurally engaged in a lot of directing violence on a level which socially we consider to be acceptable. And one of the things that really struck me is how many of them are also involved in interpersonal violence. And I think that connection between big structural warfare type violence and intimate domestic violence or violence against other individual men. It's really quite striking. There's a lot of that about. And I think that whole context of killing people being quite ordinary 
in a conflict environment must have an impact on the psychology of the people who are there in terms of how they behave. So I don't think it's just about what are the rules of the vendetta, because undoubtedly there are people at the time who would have said this is all terrible and you should calm down and make peace and settle this. So even at the time, that's not necessarily something that's just regarded as okay. But then I think the context of war seems to be very important in understanding more broadly what's going on. And you've mentioned Alessandro's wife, and you mentioned also his mistress, and that he died visiting another woman. Was he a womanizer? He's certainly accused of being a womanizer, and I think that's probably true up to a point. I mean, he does seem to have had one quite consistent relationship with Tadeo Malaspina, who's the mistress. She has two children with him. They are acknowledged and accorded various privileges, then brought up with members of the Medici family after their father's death. But a number of people say, yes, he is having affairs with other women. There are kind of all sorts of more lurid stories from his enemies about how he's going around breaking into convents and seducing nuns and nice young women of the city. And isn't this terrible? There's not a lot very concrete about that. I think part of what's going on here is that there's a broader shift in gender relations in Florence with the change from the Republic to the Duchy because for the first time you really have these powerful women in much more public life than you've been accustomed to under the Republic whereas now you have a Duchess who's going to have a public court and make lots of public appearances you have a mistress who is wielding strategic influence for her own family who are important and they're married into the Chibo family who are kind of family with cardinals and former popes. So there are suddenly a lot of these powerful women. I do wonder whether to some extent the womanized reputation also reflects some anxiety about the fact that women can now acquire power and favour and influence by sleeping with the prince. If you were an ambitious woman in 1530s Florence, you suddenly have a new option in regard to the court and how you conduct yourself, that you didn't really have in quite the same way when Florence was a republic with elections and a regular turnover of office-holding men. So, as you say, we get to the point where the power balance is such that we get Lorenzo turning against him and staging this assassination. Do you think that Alessandro always knew that death awaited him? Was he conscious of this threat he literally wore body armour. He had his doublet lined with chainmail. This is a story that was told, and I initially read it, and I was a little bit dubious about whether this was real and whether it was exaggeration. And then I got the wardrobe accounts, and there you have it, one after the other doublets lined with this very fine mail. It's like a stab vest. Somebody tries to take a knife to you, you are going to have some protection on your torso against being stabbed. So you don't do that. I mean, these things are not particularly comfortable to wear. You don't go around in body armour unless you're quite aware that there is a regular and immediate threat to your well-being. And so, yes, I think he was very, very conscious of that risk of assassination. There's actually one moment where I think there's a kind of rumour of, I think it's poisoning, and then almost the next day there's an order to the tailor for a new male-lined doublet. So his is a life, by looks of things, lived in fear of reprisals for what had happened to Hippolyto. Yes, although I think for a while he perhaps got a little bit complacent about after Hippolyto was out of the way 
after he'd had been victorious at these hearings with Charles V, he'd got married to Margaret. It looked as if Margaret was pregnant for a while. Maybe she lost the baby. You know, had she been pregnant and there was an heir, then that completely changes the sort of situation of rulership in Florence and the sort of potential stability of the regime. So I think perhaps part of the reason that he is a little bit lax about his courtier Lorenzino, who's really been cultivating a friendship with Alessandro to get into his confidence, is that he feels like maybe some of the worst problems are over. Lorenzino really miscalculates, in fact, with the murder, because his calculation is that if he gets rid of Alessandro, then the exiled supporters of the Republic will act, invade Florence and take back power. And they don't. He's really cross that they don't. What happens is that the rule goes to a member of the minor branch of the Medici family called Cosimo. So I think, yeah, it's just one of those things where you're on your guard for so long that then you relax and suddenly shouldn't have relaxed. So in the end, this extraordinary character, Alessandro, from this illegitimate background, possibly being a person of colour, rising at such a young age to power, is then extinguished so quickly as well. What should we make of his life, do you think? The thing this life really says to me is just how easily contingency and the unexpected and personal relationships can make history turn in strange ways. And I think it does point really to when we're looking at courts and ruling families and so on, to the importance of looking not just the kind of big structures of society, but also at the way that individuals intervene and sort of these one-off moments like Clement VII happening to be ill and therefore the nephews getting swapped can trigger a whole series of events. I mean, it's a very kind of chaotic butterfly flapping its wings story in some ways. If that illness had not happened, if Ippolito had been able to take power in Florence, if Alessandro had then perhaps become a cardinal, he might have become quite conscientious about his job and got on in a responsible way with looking after church law reform. Who knows? And we just cannot tell. But I think it does show up the importance of thinking about the ways that those kind of contingent moments operate within these bigger historical situations. So what happened after his death? We have Cosimo de' Medici who comes and is now the ruler of Florence. Tell us what transpires after this point. Cosimo settles into things very nicely. Alessandro has done a lot of the difficult business of establishing a regime. He's built a big fortress, which is really unpopular, but is actually quite useful if you want to hold power, having a large sort of star-shaped fortress just on the corner of the city. He has, to some extent, done restorations of the buildings, of the streets. He has already proposed that the Medici should move themselves into the main palace, the Palazzo Vecchio in Florence, where Cosimo now moves in and builds and arranges the apartments that you can still see there where there's a big portrait of Alessandro in one of the rules which suggests that Cosmo actually wasn't necessarily against commemorating his cousin sometimes in some places. So that's all there but then what's interesting in terms of the reputation is that from Cosmo's point of view it's quite convenient to be able to say and to let the historians say to let the exiles be quite critical and when they're writing their histories and just say look you know Alessandro could be quite terrible sometimes most of those histories that are written in the 16th century though were for quite a limited audience they weren't all being printed up and published they were for Cosmo and his friends to know 
exactly what went on. And a lot of the people who were previously supported the Republic had slightly made their peace with Cosimo by agreeing that they all disliked the previous regime. And this was something they could settle on. The story goes on. Just when we first get the very explicit reference to Alessandro's race, it comes up in the 1560s in a book written not in Florence, but in Paris, defending Catherine de' Medici in the context of attacks on Catherine for the Medici not being kind of really respectable and royal enough to be queens of France. And we hear in that book about how illustrious all the men of the Medici family are. And just in passing, we get this rumour dropped in that Alessandro's mother was said to be mixed race. And then the fact that he exiles the Republicans said his mother was Moorish. Most of that book is very positive about Alessandro because it's trying to say the Medici were good people. And then it sort of disappears off the agenda for a very, very long time. It's only really in the 19th century that historians writing in the context of so-called scientific racism really pick up the tale of Alessandro's race and start linking it to his tyranny. So he said, well, of course, Alessandro was a tyrant. Have you seen his portraits? It's almost as crude as that. You can read his tyranny off his face. And those tales of Alessandro's features not being sort of civilised and him looking like a tyrant really gain ground in the 19th century. And then a really challenge quite early in the 20th, I think, even in the 1930s, particularly by African-American historians, starting to write much more positive black history, started to write about the world's great men of colour, which is a book from the 40s in which Alessandro features. So it's interesting that the way that initially in his own time, his race is not particularly seized upon, but then later on it becomes this kind of contest between racist and anti-racist scholarship. And right up until the present day, even very, very recently, I mean, I was coming across books written in the 80s and 90s when you still got echoes of that 19th century. He was ugly. His fiancée couldn't possibly have been attracted to him. He has, you know, quite pejorative descriptions of his features based on the portraits. So when I was writing the book, I really wanted to think about not just about his own time, but also to have a kind of afterword where I talked about the way that that reputation had played out, because I think it's quite important to understand the impact that that type of scholarship can have and how long-lived it actually has been. I think that's really interesting. I've said it before, but I think it's certainly true that Victorian scholarship, and in that case, scholarship being written at exactly the same time, I mean scholarship, I use the word very loosely here, things being written at exactly the same time as we Mm. have this age of colonialism is going to have an impact. The same happens in terms of thinking about gender, doesn't it, if we think about Victorian writers about women. And I think you're absolutely right that the sort of half-life of these things is so long that they reach well up into our own era. Yeah, it's very easy, particularly when you're writing kind of big study, to sort of pick out little details in passing and just not think about why is that author from the 19th century saying that in this way. It's not just an objective comment on what a portrait looked like. It's something else that's going on underneath there. And yeah, trying to unpick that and trying to understand the intellectual context in which all these people were writing I think it's very, very important and it's something that I think anybody who's studying or reading about this period of history, I mean, when you go back there, I mean, there's some incredibly detailed 
research that is done by all those 19th century scholars, but so often they're writing, particularly with regard to Thanos Andrew, the way that they talk about him, and the way that, that one of them having talked about it like that, the other simply repeat it. So easy for a story like that to just take off and carry on and be accepted within a particular culture as reasonable. And so I suppose when you were writing your book about him, it wasn't so much that you were setting out to rehabilitate him, but you were setting out to kind of re-examine him. Yeah, I really wanted to go back to the sources, to go back to what we do have from the period and see what I could piece together of what people in his own time thought and said and wrote about what he was doing. And some of that was necessarily quite piecemeal. And sometimes I found more than I thought I would. Sometimes I had to just accept that there were things that we were not going to know. We don't, for example, have a firm name for his mother. And she's sometimes called Simonetta, she's sometimes called Anna. The household documents that might have told us more about her don't survive. Maybe one day something will turn up tucked away into the wrong archive volume. But I think that becomes then the realm of the fiction writer. And we just have to allow people to imagine and speculate and I think that's fine and there's that space for imagination in history but well as you know I think a lot of the time particularly when you're writing women when you're writing women in the lower ranks of society you can't necessarily find the exact record that you want for the exact woman that you might like it for we have to kind of work out ways of filling in the gaps. I think that's absolutely right and Interesting that even for somebody of this status, someone who becomes a Duke of Florence, when we're looking at a period 500 years ago, we still have to employ that sort of technique. Yes, absolutely. And not least because Alessandro's governmental archive disappeared. Possibly deliberately was just removed from the main Medici archive at some point later in the 16th century does seem to have been around for a while, but perhaps the Medici weren't altogether keen to keep all the exact records of how they came to power as dukes. Perhaps they didn't think it was important, perhaps it got damaged at some point. We don't really know exactly what the process was, but the upshot of it is that even that type of reconstructing the day-to-day events of government is very, very difficult for Alessandro. So we don't, again, that leaves more space for the very partisan accounts of what he was doing. One of the things that I particularly enjoyed was trying to sort of then take the less common types of sources for writing a political life. So things like the satirical poetry, which is enormously fun to work with, and the material culture, the way it's documented in the wardrobe accounts, but also the drawings and the paintings, the objects, the seal that survives, the buildings which survive, which you can still go and visit, and trying to get a sense there of what these spaces that they inhabit, how might they have dressed, how does that feel, how does that look, can we reconstruct what a bedroom would have looked like. That way you get a different sort of sense, a ruler's life that's perhaps a more cultural sense of their life than we might want if we were being solely political. But you know, that in itself is interesting too. Well, this certainly has been very interesting. Thank you for introducing us to Florence in this period, to the Medici and to Alessandro and his short but very eventful life. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. 
and also to my researcher, Esther Arnott, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just the Tudors. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.